This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you. I, I assume it's no accident that Carta is the Latin for map, and it, we're obviously traveling over a lot of very... Uh, varied territory in this conference. I'm going to take you to somewhere even more exotic, I think, than anything we've had so far. But um, and certainly the style of my talk is going to be a bit different uh, about the soul. Let me begin with a story from Anatole France. Um, he spins a wonderful tale about how an old blind monk, St. Mael, sets off on a mission to the Hebrides um, and lands on an island inhabited entirely by penguins. Well, they speak a rather strange language, but he assumes they must be human beings, and so he proceeds to baptize them. Well, as you can imagine, when news of this reaches heaven, it causes quite a stir. The Lord himself is embarrassed, and he summons an assembly of clerics and doctors uh, and asks them for an opinion on the delicate question of whether these birds must now be given souls. It's a matter of more than theoretical importance, it turns out. As St. Cornelius points out, the Christian state is not without serious inconveniences for a penguin. The habits of birds are in many ways contrary to the commandments of the church. Well, after lengthy discussion, the learned fathers settle on a compromise. The baptized penguins are indeed to be given, given souls, but on St. Catherine's recommendation, these souls are to be of small size. Well, the rest of the book tells the story of what happens to the small-celled citizens of Penguin Island. Their civilization turns out to be remarkably like that of contemporary France. I wonder why that is. But to my point, the penguins had to be supplied with small souls because they didn't have any sort of souls to start with. Anatole France clearly went along with René Descartes in assuming that non-human animals in general, in a state of nature, are indeed mere machines. Uh, I couldn't find a a picture of a a penguin machine, but here's a, a duck machine, a Cartesian duck, without even a smidgen of a soul. Well, humans too, Descartes uh, accepted, um, are indeed machines of a kind. But what makes all the difference with humans, what transforms them into the intelligent, creative, semi-godlike creatures that they've become, is, of course, that a soul has been added in on top of the mechanism. Well, today we may think this kind of dualism laughable. A hundred years after Descartes, Denis Diderot was certainly laugh- laughing. He wrote, a tolerably clever man began his book with these words. Man is composed of two distinct substances, the soul and the body. I nearly shut the book. Oh, ridiculous writer, you don't know what it is that you call soul, less still how they are united. But it seems that no one told Charles Darwin about this joke. Um, Fifty years later, the young Charles Darwin was writing in one of his scientific notebooks. The soul, by the consent of all is super-added. Well, we may laugh, um, but if we do, I'm here to say that I think we ought to think again. Because if we look at all closely at human psychology, we'll find that Descartes, and for that matter, the young Darwin, were actually pretty much on target. It was Diderot, rather, who didn't know what he was talking about. We do know what souls, what it is that we call soul. The soul... Your soul, I'm going to talk in the second person, you'll see why. um, Your soul is nothing less than the spirit at the core of your being. It's you, your conscious self. 
Um, it's, it's one and only subject, your private thoughts and feelings. It's the person you know yourself to be, and it's a person others treat you as being. Now, this soul of yours has obviously come into existence with your body, yet equally obviously, it's not made of bodily stuff. It lasts through the night, for example, while your body sleeps. It wanders off and leaves your body during dreams. It doesn't grow old and decrepit as your body does. And so, of course, at least this is the natural thing to hope. There's a chance that your soul should be able to outlast your body's death. Everywhere in the world, human beings have a conception of this kind. Souls, and indeed immortal souls, are part of the manifest image we humans have of what it means to be a human being. So, bully for Descartes, I'd want to say. But are you getting nervous? Um, <laughs> here's the, ma- the major, major qualification I'm going to add. This human soul has not been added by God, as Descartes would have had it. It hasn't been added by natural selection, as a modern Darwinist might want to have it. No, the truth is, the soul has been added by human culture. Culture, of course, working with nature, as it always does, but not bounded by the competence of genes. The soul is your culture's view of who you are. To put it bluntly, you come to have a soul in rather the same way as you may come to have a passport. The soul is a kind of culturally sanctioned, internalised identity document. It tells you your vital statistics, your sex, your birthday, your parentage, who you're married to, and so on, where you've been and when you went there, and so on, this history of your life. And most important, it tells you what your rights are. You probably can't read that there. Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires, in the name of Her Majesty, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely. So you'll appreciate that this soul isn't just any kind of, uh, of identity paper. Um, here's a small soul, if there ever was one. <laughs> uh, this, can you probably can't read that. This number, it reads, has been established for uh, Nicholas Humphrey. A number? Is that all? Um, uh, no, my soul, your soul, is much more than a number. It's a document that makes you feel quite special and important. Just look at that first page. When I first had my passport, I'd spent ages admiring it. What a fine fellow am I. (laughs) Well, I won't push this analogy too far, but here's the punchline. The human soul, your passport to personhood, also has a highly significant first page. And this is where nature, biological evolution, comes in. For behind the soul, and preceding it in evolutionary history, is nothing less than the conscious self the self founded on the experience of sensations with their magical, phenomenal qualities. This soul of yours blinks into life every morning when you re-emerge from sleep and rediscover what it's like to be the living you. When you see the dawn, when you hear the birds singing, when you feel the cold sheets, when you smell the coffee, when sensations refill the lake of your being. Here you are, living, as I've put it, in the thick moment of consciousness. Here you are in this strangely private world, experiencing sensations that are yours alone. Here you are, and here we all are, sharing in that mysterious, unshared world of self. Here you are, a kind of focal singularity within the universe, but well aware and thankfully aware that you're not the only one. Now, are these conceptions of the self unique to human beings? 
I'd say we can fairly assume that the feeling of existence, the sense of interiority, of privacy, individuality that comes with consciousness is something many non-human animals feel as well. The groundwork for the soul was done by natural selection long before humans came on the scene. But it's only we humans who, egged on by culture, have built this up into the notion of a fully-fledged, spiritually-driven human being. Now, much of the self-glorification that goes into this is, of course, delusory. It's wishful thinking. But could it be useful wishful thinking? What could be the payoff of thinking ourselves, of ourselves in this grand way? Diderot scoffed at any suggestion that the soul could be a, a beneficial add-on. Here's what he wrote. If the union of a soul to a machine is impossible, let someone prove it to me. If it is possible, let someone tell me what would be the effects of this union. And he went on to ask, what difference between a sentient living pocket watch and a watch of gold or iron or, or silver or copper? If a soul were joined to the latter, what would it produce therein? Well, the answer Descartes clearly was going for was none, no difference. The soul would have no practical effect on the watch. It simply wouldn't show. But what a bad analogy. Diderot takes a machine with just one dimension of expression, with no scope whatever for love or tenderness or creativity, and then he mocks it for not showing soulful behaviour. Yes, if you're a watch and all you're about is clocking the time, then indeed adding a soul it won't make any difference. You won't notice it. But if you're a human being and you add a soul, if you're a human in a human community, and if all the others, other humans around you have souls too, if what you're about together is friendship and cooperation and invention and speculation, why, then it's a very different story. We humans have indeed discovered that we are a society of souls, and the idea is extraordinarily potent psychologically, ethically, and politically. And I dare say that from the moment it took off among our ancestors, it must have been highly adaptive. I mean, adaptive in the conventional sense, uh, in, in, in ensuring its own continuation. It transformed human relationships. It encouraged new levels of mutual respect, and it must have greatly increased the value each person put on his own on the, and on, on, on others' lives. As the theologian Keith Ward has put it, the whole point of talking of the soul is to remind ourselves constantly that we transcend all the conditions of our material existence. We transcend them precisely in being indefinable, always more than can be seen or described, subjects of experience and action, unique and irreplaceable. So here's why I'm driving. For members of the human species to live in a world where people have this kind of opinion of themselves is to live in what we can call the soul niche. And I mean niche now in the conventional ecological use of that term. It's an environment to which a species has become adapted and where it is designed to flourish. Trout live in rivers. Gorillas live in forests. Bedbugs live in beds. Humans live in soul land. Soul land is a territory of the spirit. It's a place where the magical interiority of human minds makes itself felt on every side. It's a place where we naturally assume that every other human lives as we do in the, in the extended present of phenomenal consciousness, where we recognise and celebrate the awesome possibilities of individual, private, 
joy and suffering. It's a place where the fate of one's own and other people's souls is a constant talking point, where souls are the subject of gossip, of tender concern, of mean speculation, of manipulation by prayer and by spells. It's a place where the claims of the spirit begin to rank just as highly as the claims of the flesh. I could go on in that vein, but I don't need to. You live there. You know. And the consequence of this was, well, the consequence is that human beings are destined to dwell on those eternal questions which Fred mentioned at the very beginning of this conference. Where have we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And it's been in asking and answering those questions that our species, as a biological entity, has indeed raised itself nearly to the level of the gods. Well, what's the point of that? Do humans really need to ascend to the level of the gods? Um, I've been told... Dan Dennis told me that this hypothesis, that consciousness has evolved just so as to give give us this inflated idea of ourselves, is functionally extravagant. It makes our consciousness to be a solution to a non-problem. I don't think so. You might as well object that birds don't need to fly. Terrestrial animals were doing just fine before any of them thought of taking to the sky. Flight was a solution to a non-problem, you might say. Yet wings and flight opened up a new world for birds to exploit. And looking at the history of human beings over the last 100,000 years, looking at that history, I think we conclude that angel wings did much the same for us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, let me start by thanking the Carter organisers for inviting me to this very distinguished and uh, marvellously exciting um, symposium. And let me secondly say what a very silly question you've asked us to address, (laughs) as has already been pointed out. Is the human mind unique? Well, of course it is unique, as is the minds of all other uh, animals. Not only that but all other individuals as well. And on this particular picture, we can recognise some individuals there, but not others. But we must remember when we're talking about chimpanzees or Neanderthals I'm talking about, there is a dimension of individuality going across, which we must somehow have to bring into our consideration. So the minds of all of these uh, individuals and species are unique. And the way that we can explore what specific aspects make the human mind different what are his only unique ways, is through the comparative method. So we have to ask questions of comparison. And the first one we must ask is, what is the difference here? Well, here we have two representatives of the Homo sapiens and Pantroglodytes and ask, what is the difference between them? Well, quite easy to answer. There's about 1,000 cc of brain matter and about 6 million years of evolutionary divergence. It's fairly straightforward. And what has that um, resulted in? Well, has resulted in this particular chimpanzee still living in the West African forest, but Professor Humphrey residing for at least a few days in San Diego in an environment entirely different to that of his evolutionary ancestors, whereas this chimpanzee is living in an environment which is broadly quite similar, and we suspect that he or she is behaving in a fairly similar way. So the bigger brain provides language, 
high orders of intentionality, abstract thought, cumulative culture, and so on and so forth. It could be a whole variety of things, okay? Let's go to a much more difficult and, for me, a much more interesting question. What is the difference between these two? Here's another representative of Homo sapiens and a representative of Homo neanderthalensis, so reconstruction of a particular individual from a particular skull, somebody whose identity we do not know, and there we have Professor Dan Dennett representing the human race for us. <laughs> what is the difference between them? Not very much. If we, look at their, uh, if we look at their brains, for instance, broadly the same size. And now, if you took body weight into comparison, you might say the Homo sapiens brain is slightly larger, but not so much that we can easily come to a ready answer that the difference in brain is resulting in the very different qualities. And here, of course, remember, we're talking about different types of humans. So go back to the question, is the human mind unique? Well, what sort of human? Homo sapiens, Homo gaster, Homo erectus, Homo hylobogensis. There's lots of different types of humans. So the question is not, I think what the question we want addressing is, is a human mind, brain unique, but is Homo sapiens mind unique? So the, looking at the difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens is much more challenging because we haven't got the easy answer of a grossly different uh, brain size. Now, let me just remind you that Neanderthals are uh, a very recent um, relative of ours, uh, an offshoot at about 300,000 years ago on that um, uh, line there leading to, to modern humans. Became extinct about 30,000 years ago after having been a remarkably successful species for more than 200,000 years. And during, since their remains were first discovered in the late 19th century, there's been well-documented swings of opinion regarding the Neanderthals, uh, Marcel Boulle here we see re reconstructed in 1909, rather brutish, savage Neanderthals. Yeah, and there on your, on your right we have a rather more 20th century version of, of the Neanderthals, very much like me and you, although they uh, enjoy uh, nudity perhaps rather more than we do, or rather more than some of us at least. Uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless a, highly, a highly social, intelligent species, no doubt. So, archaeologists and others have the task of trying to reconstruct what the Neanderthal mind may have been like with one view of trying to understand is there any difference between the Neanderthal mind and that of Homo sapiens, although looking at the Neanderthal minds for their own sake is a, is a perfectly um, good and valid enterprise. And we draw on archaeological evidence for looking at behavioural change, we look at fossil evidence for looking at the size of the cranium, and then we have to engage with a whole wealth of other disciplines, comparative psychology and ethology, social anthropology, neuroscience, genetics, and so on and so forth. And when archaeologists refer to mind, they tend to use it as a, a catch-all term, not really knowing what philosophers are talking about when they talk about philosophy of mind. Intelligence, emotion, memory, planning, learning, and so on and so forth. So being rather unspecific. Now what I'd contend is that if we look at the actual record and the fossil record in as much detail as we can, we can see eight reasons for suspecting there were very minimal differences between the Neanderthal and the modern mind. And therefore, if we are unique, we're not unique by very much at all. There is, for instance, the close evolutionary relationship. We shared an ancestor no more than 500,000 years ago, 
Is that time for significant differences in cognition to have evolved? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. We know now there's some degree of interbreeding happening between Neanderthals and modern humans. We know, I've already referred to the similarity in brain size. And looking at the vocal tract, there's no reason to uh, infer any significant differences in the capacity for vocalisation from anatomy alone. Uh, further reason, my number five, is simply looking at the complexity of the Neanderthal stone t- tool technology, uh, especially the Lavalwatik, that technique we see here. Neanderthals were routinely shaping blocks of stone using immense skill and foresight so they could remove large flakes, large blades, and in this case, a point perfectly ready to be hafted for use. It's extraordinarily skillful activity. Very few modern flintknappers who acquire these ancient arts are able to replicate what the Neanderthals were doing on a routine basis. So it seems most likely to me they must have involved some active teaching, vertical, horizontal, and bleak, coming across generations. And then further, we need to remember that the Neanderthals were um, an extraordinarily successful species. Now, if Homo sapiens last 200,000 years, I'd be surprised the way we're going to this planet. <laughs> and Neanderthals made it. They lasted to maybe 300,000 years. Not only that, during that period of time, the global climate swung from Ice Age to interglacial and back to glacial period. They were present all the way from the Atlantic coast right through into Central Asia at Tasik Tash, uh, inhabiting a very diverse range of environments. What a clever species to have done that and survived such enormous climate change that is doing such devastating consequences to our societies at present. Now, partly doing that, they were outstanding hunters. We know by looking at their skeletal remains, doing some very clever isotope studies, that, they, that meat played a very high role in their diet. They hunted big game, often using Spears, short thrusting spears, and that would have required cooperation, a lot of planning, and for me, most important, a lot of trust between individuals. This isn't hunting like a social carnivore, like a, like, like a chimpanzee. This is a, this is a much more sophisticated group hunting, I think. So this begins to us thinking about not only their technical skills and their natural history knowledge, but also their social skills. And when we look at um, aspects of their sociality, Again, we're drawn to thinking that the similarities with modern humans, homo sapiens, are far more profound than the differences. Now, some would argue that if you look at brain size within primates, it broadly correlates with levels of social intelligence, however that might be defined, such as empathy. And if that's the case, Nyantas would have the same levels of social intelligence as we have. But we can also look at the social care of the individuals. They were burying Uh, some individuals, some who got wounded and injured were clearly cared for and back to health. We cannot avoid the conclusion that Neanderthals showed great deals of empathy, great deals of social care. We can't avoid that they're much like us in those regards. So I've given you eight different, eight reasons why the Neanderthal mind and the Homo sapiens mind appears almost identical. Here's three differences why they seem just absolutely radically different. And I've listed them here. I'll go through them in a little bit more detail. Cultural homogeneity versus cultural change, rapid replacement, and the absence of symbolism. Let's look at the first of those. Now, throughout the two or three hundred thousand years of their existence, 
Neanderthals remained as Stone Age hunter-gatherers in restricted regions of the world. In this picture on your left, you'll see the um, deep sequence at Taboon Cave in, in Israel, which stretches for about 200,000 years. You can take the artefacts at the base of that sequence and reconstruct the way of life at the base of that sequence. It's not, much, it's not different in kind from that at the top. Remarkable stability. Through all those climate changes, through all the demographic changes, much the same going on. And there on, the, on, the, um, on your right... Where is that? I think that's Tokyo, is it? I'm not quite sure. But anyway, what we're seeing, what we're seeing here is in merely the 200,000 years at most that modern humans have survived, and most of this activity has happened in the last 10,000 years, we have radically changed the way we live. So, so we've got a globalised climate now with megacities and, and so forth. Radically different type of species, radically different type of mind. And we can see that if you look more detailed. So if you look at these stone artefacts... Neanderthals made very few technical innovations. They changed the types of tools, they responded to raw materials, but the amount of innovation is limited. Among modern humans, after an admittedly slow and bumpy start, by the time you get to around 50,000 years or so ago, you see innovation after innovation after innovation. Things such as sewing needles, fantastic in the middle of a glacial period. Neanderthals didn't invite sewing needles to improve their clothing, or harpoons, and so on and so forth. Now, we know from the Neanderthals, from their skeletal remains, they were on just on the edge of existence. Though there was never a population, I think, under more uh, adaptive stress than Neanderthals. Why the heck didn't they invent some tools to help themselves out? Why didn't they invent some bow and arrows, some spear throwers, <laughs> some needles? It's ridiculous, OK? <laughs> and why didn't they invent farming? Now, here's a, here's a more interesting question. Um, Homo sapiens dispersed out of Africa around 50,000 years ago. The very first time an interglacial came along, they invented farming. Not just in one place, but in eight or nine different places in the world. And that led to the early civilizations and San Diego. Okay? <laughs> it just happened. Now, look at this chart. You see the Neanderthals. They hit interglacial, they hit interglacial, they hit interglacial. They carried on doing much the same. Why is it modern humans just responded to the interglacials in that manner and the Neanderthals didn't? It must be something to do with the reason that Neanderthals were so rapidly replaced by modern humans in Europe. Modern humans dispersed into Europe around 40,000 years ago. Within five, 6,000 years, Neanderthals have been pushed to the margins and then faded into extinction. Yes, there may have been a little bit of interbreeding, there doesn't seem to be any violence and warfare and so forth, but the Neanderthals were edged out by ecological competition. There was a species that lived in there, in that low landscapes, for more than 100,000 years. They were adapted to those particular environments. In come these Africanists, these Homo sapiens. Within a few thousand years, they had the land world to themselves. Why was that? And then we have the issues of symbolism, here we have a, um, just some reminders here. Here we have the uh, Red Cross for first aid. I think it's entirely arbitrary. We have icons and indexes. No doubt animals, no doubt Neanderthals were using things like footprints and fire to make associations with future events. They're not symbols. Um, for, for us, everything and anything might have symbolic meaning, such as the red rose, a symbol of love, which reminds me I spent Valentine's Day flying across the Atlantic rather than going out for dinner with my wife. But, uh, <laughs> but there we go. Such is science. Now, the Neanderthals 
There's been lots of claimed visual symbols for the Neanderthals, things such as Chateauprenian artefacts. The archaeologists among you will know the many pages and pages of debate that have gone on about whether Neanderthals made these pendants and beads or whether they just found them or whether they invented them by copying humans. Terrible debate. I don't think it's got us anywhere. Personally, I don't think they made them. I think that it's interstratified mixing within deposits. They may well have pierced some shells, some contentious evidence on that, and there's a few little bones with scratches on, but there's no repeated iconography at all. They certainly buried some of their dead, but I don't think burial is a symbolic act. It's simply an act of loving and uh, caring for individuals. And there's some claims the Antars use pigments. There's getting quite strong claims now. From France, it's a black pigment, manganese, manganese oxide. And um, whether they're using that for um, symbolic decoration is not contentious. Zihau, an archaeologist, he argues from some evidence from Spain that found on these shells, that Neanderthals there were engaged in body painting. And the Distinguished Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences um, published this article recently, appearing very assertive that Neanderthals were symbolically organised throughout the lives right to the very end. I think this is one of the most appalling statements published in an academic journal, because I think, the, uh, I think the evidence for this is absolutely limited, ambiguous, and I think it's shameful it's been published in that manner. But the Neanderthals may have been body painting. If they were, I don't think it's necessarily symbolic. Neanderthals on the modern mind. I've given you eight reasons for minimal difference. They're very closely evolution-related to us. Some interbreeding going on. We don't know how much. They had large brains. Modern vocal tract. They're technically complex, ecologically sustainable, fantastic hunting and social skills. In all that regard, would say their minds can't be very different from our minds. And yet we have almost the exact opposite message coming from other aspects of the Ark's record. There's a remarkable cultural homogeneity, this rapid replacement, and then the absence of symbolic behaviour. So how do we explain the differences? Well, if we, I'd argue that there are, in fact... Three key differences, big differences, massive differences between the Neanderthal and the modern mind. And it's these things that make the modern human mind unique from one of its very closest relatives. I'd argue that we have what I call cognitive fluidity or capacity for metaphor uh, compared to what I call for Neanderthal's domain-specific mentality. We have compositional language, grammar... Rules of grammar, large lexicon from which we can create almost any utterance we want. I don't think the Neanderthals had that. I describe them having this hom communication. I'll some reference to that moment. And thirdly, we, we have this ex- remarkably extended mind. I'm surrounded by all of your bits of all of your mind, all in this auditorium. Neanderthals were very contained. Unfortunately, they kept their minds within their craniums. So let's briefly look at those. This is from my... 1996 book, Prehistory of the Mind, that's a rather long time ago now, but I think the arguments still stand, that the Neanderthals on your uh, left were just thoroughly modern, like me and you, thinking about tools, thinking about technology, about material objects, thinking about the natural world, and thinking about other human beings. What they weren't so good at doing was bringing those thoughts together. These were very isolated cognitive domains. On humans, on the other hand, I think because of virtue of compositional language, have this capacity for cognitive fluidity 
or in other words, a capacity for metaphor or strong analogy. Here's the, here's the difference it makes here. So um, if you see this, this, this Neanderthal chap at the bottom there, um, I don't think you could ever come up with the idea of making body ornaments, making some nice beads, because that means taking what you know about the social messages you want to send to somebody and taking what you know about making things and combining those together. I don't think he could do that. Equally, making tools to hunt specific animals in specific circumstances, it's a design task I think they lacked. In terms of uh, communication, moderns, I think, had compositional language like we do, enable their cognitive fluidity. I think Neanderthals had a sophisticated form of communication, vocal communication. I think it was inherently musical in nature. And I think music is something that isn't unique to the modern mind. I think that is deeply, deeply evolved and and shared by many types of humans. And then, and then uh, lastly, Neanderthals contain minds with extended eyes into the material world. That's partly what all the cave paintings are about. It's partly what your iPad's about. It's part of what the beads are about. We gave up on the brain. We thought it wasn't good enough for us. We extended the minds out. And, of course, um, we have a good example of there with Professor Dennett with his mind sat on the wooden shelves behind him as much as within the cranium itself. So my very last slide... Is the human mind unique? Yes, of course it is. Don't ask such a silly question. But so too is that of all species, and indeed all individuals. The difference between the human and chimpanzee mind are vast. How could it not be? There's a, there's a, there's a third, we have three times larger brain and six million years of evolutionary separation. The difference between modern humans and Neanderthals, that's a much more interesting question. I think they relate to patterns of connectivity within the brain that enable cognitive fluidity, compositional language, and extension of the mind into the material world. So thank you for listening, and many thanks again to the Carlton Institution. We can give a perfectly sound biological account of why there should be pain and pain behavior. What we want is a similarly anchored account of why there should be hilarity and laughter. I wrote that more than 20 years ago and more or less promised to provide that account in that book. When I thought about it good and hard and did some reading, I was as stumped as any Neanderthal could be. I, <laughs> I, it was a, an embarrassment. I just gave up. And then along came Matthew Hurley. This is a perfect illustration of what Steve Mythen was just telling you about the extended mind. Matthew is a student of mine who showed up, and he wanted to do a theory of humor. And I said, much too hard, much too hard, do something else. No, he would not be dissuaded. And this resulted in the Hurley model of humor in the book that we uh, published together just a, a year or so ago, the paperback's just out, Inside Jokes Using Humor, to reverse engineer the mind. There's three authors. Reg Adams is the third, a young psychologist, then at Tufts, now at Penn State. So this is a product of of the extended mind, to be sure. Now, humor theories have been around (laughs) for a long time. They go back to Aristotle and Hobbes and Kant and Darwin and Schopenhauer and Bergson and Freud and Minsky and Kirstler and the Three Stooges. (laughs) Lots of humor theories. You probably have a humor theory of your own. And it's probably right about some little fraction of the things that we find funny. 
Everybody, I find, has a theory of humor. There's all these theories. Let's just briefly look at some of the earlier theories. Hobbes is famous for his superiority theory. Sudden glory arising from some conception of eminency in ourselves by comparison with the infirmity in others. Well, it rings a bell. It rings a bell. You can see how that could be true of a lot of humor, but not all. It doesn't explain puns, for instance. I want to also concentrate on, as Hobbes did, on sudden glory, which gives us another uh, genus of humor theories, the surprise theories. Uh, Here's an example. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for laughing. You're improving my point. This is a little experiment that I wanted to run. Now we get a little bit turgid and intellectual. We go to Kant, talking about incongruity resolution theories, sudden transformation of a strained expectation into nothing. Well, there's a lot of point to that, and other people followed through. Schopenhauer had a variant on the Kantian theory. Then we have uh, Marvin Minsky's faulty logic theories. This is sort of naughty thinking. Then there's the mechanical theory of Henri Bergson. So we have all these different, and release theories of Freud. And you see, they're all really quite different. And they all get at one aspect or another of humor. But they don't unify. What we have here is a bunch of blind wise men and an elephant. And everybody's right about something, and nobody sees the whole elephant. Well, Matthew set out to do the whole elephant. And his theory at first... Uh, I didn't buy it. In fact, his first draft, I just dismissed. I said, no, 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 this is wrong. It can't possibly be right. And in fact, my initial complete uh, incredulity and refusal to take it seriously, in the end, I decided it was an important datum. That helped to explain why nobody got there before us. Because it's initially counterintuitive and it's hard, it's hard to take seriously until you work it out. Thank goodness Matthew said, no, I just haven't said it right, Professor Dunnett. You wait, you wait. I'll get it. You'll see. And I did. And so I'm on board now for the Hurley model of humor, which is what I'm going to be talking about. It's a unification of the insights and it's grounded in evolution. And it also provides a sketch of a model of how the brain probably works. Think about the variety of humor. There's slapstick, there's puns and wordplay. Here's a few examples. I like this one. Email, the happy medium between male and female. (laughs) Not clever. The face of a child can say it all, especially the mouth part of the face. (laughs) You don't need words. There's cartoons, stimulus response, stimulus response. Don't you ever think? (laughs) Think how different comedies can be. We have uh, the importance of being earnest. We have Seinfeld. Both very funny, very different. Then there's the role of context. What do all these have in common? Well, obviously, 
they make us laugh. That's trivial. How? Why? Why, why is humor entertaining? Why is it rewarding? Well, they tickle our funny bone. Okay, let's just take that seriously and ask what a funny bone is. And why do, we, why do we have a funny bone? That's the evolutionary question. Why do we have a funny bone that can be tickled? Well, in case you wonder, yes, we do have a funny bone. I'll show you where it is here. Let's see. Yeah. You see, see this sort of dog here? And there, there's a bone right there. <laughs> Obviously, that's not serious. I hope you realize that. <laughs> Humor and laughter, the relationship between them is actually not straightforward. Rama here has a very nice account of laughter, which we help ourselves to and adjust a little bit. Uh, it's different from humor. Between a humorous input and laughing output, there's, there's an intervening variable of sorts which we might as well call mirth. And we can experience mirth without laughing and laugh without experiencing mirth. That's just true. So mirth is actually a slightly better dependent variable than laughter if we, can, if we can get it, if we ask people whether they find something funny. So the question is, why does mirth exist at all? We've got to start with that. Mirth is, in fact, highly revealing about cognitive states and processes. That's why the subtitle of our book is Using Humor to Reverse Engineer the Mind, because I think we can learn a lot about the computational architecture and economies of the mind by understanding how mirth plays a role in it. So the funny bone, we claim, is a hardwired reward system that evolved by natural selection to ensure that a certain costly job gets done. And then, once we had this organ, as if you like, that evolved to do this costly job, then it's been prospected for millennia by comedians who create supernormal stimuli of comedy. So what comedy is, what humor is, is supernormal stimuli culturally evolved and transmitted for overstimulating the funny bone. Now, we know what sweet is for. It rewards us for choosing high-energy, sugar-rich food. We're wired up to find sugar-rich foods relatively irresistible, and it's an innate preference. We know what sexy is for. It rewards us for the time and effort spent mating. We wouldn't do it if there wasn't a reward system, and that would be the end of us. We know what cute is for. It rewards us for nurturing and protecting our young. And it's wired right into us. Now, what is funny for? What is funny for? The three previous examples, we can see there's a, there's a deep evolutionary need that is met by having a reward system tuned to them. Now we need to know what funny is for. And the Hurley model is an attempt to explain this, humor and laughter in terms of the evolutionary origins, the cognitive computational problem that our funny bones solve, and then the cultural elaboration of the underlying mechanism. Here's a little verse to give you the sense of our theory, and I'll just give it to you in a trice. 
There was an old woman who lived in her shoes. She had so many children she didn't know what to do. Their rooms were piled high with the playthings of boys, comic books, fishing rods, discarded toys, model planes, model trains, the dirt that goes with them, and a huge piles of laundry that flowed out to the kitchen. And try as she may to get them to sweep. She'd scold them and threaten, implore them and weep. She'd give them dust cloths, vacuums and brooms. She just could not get them to clean up their rooms. So she gave them some broth without any bread, whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. Then she had a bright idea. Parallel to evolution's bright idea, this is what she did. First, she put Swiffer soles on their slippers and hid candy all around in their rooms. And sure enough, in no time at all, they found all the candy, rewarding them for cleaning up their rooms, which looked like the guest room at Martha Stewart's by the time they were through. That's the rationale for the evolutionary account that we're giving, that there is a costly garbage collection and cleanup and reordering job that has to be done and that the brain has to solve the problem. The brain's job, as we all know, is to produce future. And this is time-pressured, real-time heuristic search. Everything that's happening right now, all through the day, it's coming in like a fire hose, and you've got to sort it out and interpret it on the fly and make sense of it. It's an unsupervised process where you ignore some things and take other things seriously. It's approximating, it's oversimplifying, you're jumping to conclusions all the time. And what happens is that mistaken inferences creep in surreptitiously without your noticing them. Those are the, those are, those, that's the garbage that has to be cleaned up. If those bugs aren't caught and debugged, data integrity, as a computer scientist would say, is it threatened. Now, debugging, as every computer scientist knows, is costly, resource-consuming, attention-demanding job. The solution is the joy of debugging. Evolution has to bribe the brain to get the job done. Now, to take this idea seriously, you have to discard lots of, I would hope now, obsolete models of the computational architecture of the brain. There isn't a boss and a hierarchical relationship. It's somewhat anarchic, there's tugs of war, it's deeply competitive, and the point is that one job that the brain had better do is cleaning up, and in order to get it to do that in competition with everything else the brain is doing, that cleaning up has to be rewarded. That's the only way anything ever gets done in the brain. No top-down control signals. Now, once the dirty job reward machinery is in place, it can be exploited by self-stimulation, which reminds me of masturbation. And there's a sense in which this is the parallel for this reward system of masturbation for the libido. But then it can be harnessed for many further social purposes. Those are the purposes outlined in all those other theories of humor. Superiority enhancement, allegiance probing, uh, showing off to the opposite sex. There's all these very good uses of humor, but they all presuppose the existence of this reward system, and that's what has to be explained first. 
So supernormal stimuli, I think probably everybody here knows about Tinbergen and supernormal stimuli. He noticed that uh, gull chicks uh, peck at the, at the bright orange spot on the, on the mother gull's beak, and that uh, provokes her to regurgitate food. And he had the very clever idea of coming up with just wands that didn't look at all like a gull's head, but with bigger and brighter orange spots on them. And sure enough, the chicks pecked even harder and faster and more often at those super normal stimuli. Now, the main reason, I would say, just to telescope a lot of complexity, the main reason that humans have humor and, say, gulls don't, is they don't have any gull Tinbergens to develop supernormal stimuli. That, uh, for reasons that uh, uh, Steve Mythen was talking about in the last talk, that really depends on extended mind, culture, language, and the rest. So humor consists of supernormal stimuli designed by both unwitting cultural evolution and individual intelligent designers. There's every comedians. There's the R&D for creating these supernormal stimuli includes both pure Darwinian cultural evolution uh, where, where, where nobody understands why this is good, but they just laugh, and so it happens, and it gets replicated. And also, of course, uh, people actually really clever, intelligent designers of humor, comedians, uh, uh, authors of comedies, and the rest. All designed to overstimulate the debugging reward machinery, and we love it. It's a billion-dollar-plus industry. Now, how good is that theory? Well, we offer a whole theory. We say, if you don't like it, come up with a better one. We're going to show you how it handles the phenomenology of humor, meaning all the varieties of humor, the things that humor consists of. First of all, you have to come to understand that humor is not an intrinsic property. It is a Lockean secondary quality like red. It depends on the disposition in the observer. Consider the following idea. First there was sweetness, and then we evolved to like sweetness. No, no. First there was glucose. First there was sugar. But sweetness evolved with our liking it. They are indissoluble. They, have, they go together. And the same thing has got to be true of humor. Theorizing about humor without studying the brain is like theorizing about sweetness by looking very carefully at the structure of glucose. That's not going to tell you what sweetness is. That's not going to tell you what sweetness is. And most theories of humor in the past have intensely studied funny texts, funny pictures, and so forth, without thinking carefully about what must be going on in the brains of the observers uh, 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 appreciating that humor. Well, one of the things we know about humor is that order is important. This is part of the phenomenology. Man walks up to a hot dog vendor and says, make me one with everything. Oh, and the man is a Buddhist. Mm, no, get that out of order. Why is order important? That's one of the things you have to explain. Timing is important. I can't resist telling a story about my late great friend, John McCarthy, who at a meeting not unlike this, first speaker gets up and starts talking. Somebody at the back of the room yells, louder. So the fellow begins speaking louder, and John yells, funnier. 
you got to get the timing right, and then it's a killer. This cartoon, in a way, was the inspiration for, for Matthew Hurley's model. He began to notice that in many languages, there's a word like funny in English, which has two meanings, nicely exemplified here. There's funny, uh-oh, what's that funny smell? What's that funny noise? And then there's funny, ha-ha. And it turns out that's true in a lot of languages. We have, we've got a good dozen that there's a term like this. And he decided that was actually a, an important clue. And the, the clue really is that humor always begins with a bit of a mistake. It always begins with a tiny uh-oh, which is then resolved almost immediately. In the, oh, never mind, it's okay. And it's this down-up, starting off with a little bit of negativity, a little down, followed by a little bit of up. The same point's been made in a wonderful book by David Huron called Sweet Anticipation about music. Now, Huron's book is about reverse engineering the mind using music as a probe. Ours is about using humor as a probe. As he says, pleasure is increased when a positive response follows a negative response. While surprise is biologically bad, surprise nevertheless plays a pivotal role in human emotional experience. Surprise acts as an emotional amplifier. We call this the Huron trampoline. We sometimes intentionally use this amplifier to boost positive emotions. That's one of the keys to our model. Covert entry is very important in humor. The mental spaces filling up with all this furniture as life goes on, easily cluttered up and they get easily contaminated. And what happens is that mistaken premises enter without notice. They enter covertly. And this is important to, to achieve the, the, the groundwork for making something funny. I'll give you uh, an observation which just makes this point in space. If there is a joke that in order to understand it, there is some fact you have to know, and you want to tell a joke to somebody who doesn't know that fact, and you tell them the fact first, then you tell them the joke. No humor at all. No humor at all, because the the fact entered not by covert entry, but entered very publicly. If, if the facts that the joke depends on aren't common knowledge so that you don't have to mention them, so that they will automatically get generated in this helter-skelter mental space furnishing, uh, you're not going to have humor. That's, of course, also the main reason why humor doesn't travel all that well, how it often depends on very small groups of people who happen to share the same basic tacit understanding. Now, this is going to be disappointing, but I can't in 20 minutes do better than this. Just to let you know, I, we really do have a fairly clear, crisp, and, uh, as it were, uh, refutable model. So, first of all, we distinguish between first-person humor, which is the root basic humor, and then there's the rest of humor. So first-person or proto-humor occurs when, one, an active element in a mental space that has covertly entered that space and is taken to be true within that space is diagnosed to be false in that space, simply in the sense that it is the loser in an epistemic reconciliation process, and then trivially, the discovery is not accompanied by any strong negative emotional balance. Balance. If all that is true, you have an instance, and you will always, according to this model, have an instance of, of proto-humor. Now, higher-order humor is proto-humor plus X, giving you the rest of humor. What's X? 
It's my old friend, the intentional stance. It's our involuntary capacity, disposition to treat other beings as minds that have beliefs and desires and to involuntarily actually interpret them uh, as having minds rather like ours. In humor, the first person's perspective on one's own bugs, that's the basic mechanism. If that first person humor didn't exist, humor wouldn't exist, so we claim. The intentional stance then permits and obliges us to appreciate the bugs of others, to understand the pompous man slipping on the banana peel and all the rest. And this is where the superiority effects, the in-group, out-group effects, the mechanical effects of Bergson, they all come in in the account of second-order humor, higher-order humor. Uh, but they all need first-order humor to explain why there's a reward system in the first place. So now a summary. False assumptions covertly entered into our mental spaces carry with them an automatic pleasure amplifier that kicks in when our ongoing quest for anticipation discovers and promptly resolves conflicts in those assumptions. This intensified reward, which probably only human beings experience, has then become an autonomous target, attracting efforts to design ever more potent and effective stimuli to obtain the reward. Humor, then, is an integral part of the evolved processes for maintaining data integrity in our world knowledge representations. Now, if I had a little more time, I would go on and walk through the model in slow motion showing how some jokes work and how you can turn them off by changing one condition or another, but that will just have to wait for another time. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.